I love that song. And I have not lost the wonder of the cross. It, it still amazes me. I talk about it when I think about it, when I experience the forgiveness that I have through Jesus Christ. It amazes me. All right. I'm going to make you get back up again. Sorry. We're going to stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to read Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 as we begin today. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise up, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that as we open up your word today, you would speak to us and show us again the wonder of the cross. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So our theme for this series is Encounter the Incredible. So summing up today's text, we see a man with an incredible need, encounters an incredible Savior, who in response to incredible faith, grants incredible forgiveness. I want to start out by thinking about this. What is man's greatest need? Some of us would say love. Others might say happiness. This passage addresses what many of us would probably agree is the greatest need of all mankind. Forgiveness of sin. 
If forgiveness of sin is truly man's greatest need, wouldn't you expect him to be on a rigorous search to find the forgiveness that he so desperately needs? Just ask my wife. If I have a need, for instance, maybe for food or drink, my need consumes me. I can't focus on anything else until I literally feed the need. The problem is that in the world we live in, there are many obstacles that hinder us from getting the forgiveness that we need. None of those obstacles are more overt than for those who live in North Korea. North Korea tops the list of the most dangerous places in the world to be a Christian. An estimated 50,000 Christians have been placed in prisons or labor camps in North Korea because of their faith. And an untold number have been tortured and murdered. An organization called Christian Solidarity Worldwide reports documented cases of believers being hung on a cross over a fire, crushed under a steamroller, herded off bridges, and trampled underfoot. Believers there must be weary of neighbors, friends, and even family members turning them in as all citizens are required to spy on each other. Most parents refrain from introducing their children to the Christian faith until they're older in order to protect the family. Vernon Brewer is the founder and president of an organization called World Help, and he shares this story involving a young girl named Yoon. Yoon's third grade teacher gave the class a special assignment to go home and look for a book. And if it's the right book, the student will be honored. Yoon ended up finding a Bible. The next day, she received a prize at her school. But when Yoon returned home, her parents weren't there. It's hard to imagine such cruelty that would knowingly turn children on their own parents. Those are obstacles to forgiveness and faith. As we dig into the text, we'll see that the paralytic had three obstacles to obtaining the forgiveness and saving faith that he so desperately needed. The obstacles to saving faith for him were the crowd, the scribes, and his own personal pride. The first obstacle that our paralytic must face is the crowd. Jesus has come to Capernaum. It's the town on the northern border of the Sea of Galilee, which serves as a home base while he's doing ministry in Galilee. And as our story begins, he's teaching inside a home which most likely belongs to Simon and Andrew. I say that because we know from Mark 129 that Simon and Andrew have a home in Capernaum. And we also know from Matthew that the Son of Man has 
nowhere to lay his head. So it's not Jesus' home. But Jesus is teaching here in a home, and it's packed to the gills. So packed that they can't even get in the doorway. Last summer, some friends and I went on our annual baseball trip visiting major league stadiums. This time, we went to New York City. We took a train to go see the New York Mets play at City Field, and I have never in my life seen people packed into a train like that train. Of course, every seat was filled. Then the aisles, then the doorways, And after we were filled completely, we continued to make stops at other stations. And to my amazement, people kept squeezing in. I'm not exaggerating when I say that the people in the aisles and near the doors were crammed in like sardines. Finally, near the last stop, people stopped trying to get on and waited for the next train. But in our story, there is no next house where Jesus is teaching. This was the one, and this crowd is a definite obstacle to our paralytic who wants to encounter Jesus. It's a good thing for his sake that this paralytic man had four friends who themselves showed great faith in the face of many obstacles. Seeing the crowd in the house, it would have been easy, so easy, to just give up. Oh, well, I guess it wasn't meant to be. No room in the house. We can't get in. Well, we gave it the old college try. Not these guys. Can't get in the door? Okay. Let's go in through the roof. Now, I should tell you, it's at least a little easier than some of you may think since there was likely no ladders involved in taking this man on a stretcher up on the roof of the house. Most of the houses of that day in that culture had an outside stairway that led up to the roof. The roof was flat, made of beams laid across the span of the house and then covered with a layer of thatch. You can see a picture here that kind of approximates what they might have looked like. So this thatch was a mixture of branches, leaves, and straw, and then a layer of mud was put on top of that, dried and packed down. Typically, the roofs would have to be replenished each fall with straw and mud before the winter rains came. It wouldn't have taken long for four men to have found some tools, dug a hole big enough to lower the man down through the roof into the room below where Jesus was teaching. You can imagine the crowd's reaction when the first pieces of dirt began to fall from the ceiling above. And then, what was Jesus' first thought when he noticed that everyone was distracted by the clamor of what was happening overhead? We think a crying baby in the sanctuary is bad. What if someone started ripping a hole in our roof above while I was still preaching? 
of course, didn't even phase Jesus. The text doesn't indicate that anyone said anything. I guess it wasn't necessary. Let's see. There's four dudes up on the roof, lowering a fifth dude down on the floor through a stretcher. Oh, and the dude number five, he can't walk, so I'll bet he wants to be healed. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. Right now, we're in the teaching part of our service. The healing part of the service doesn't begin for another 15 minutes. Could you please go back up on the roof and wait? Now, Jesus' words were few. He simply said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Despite the obstacle of the crowd, those four guys got their friend to Jesus. What obstacles are you willing to overcome to bring your friends to Jesus? We need to have a whatever-it-takes attitude like these four guys. As many of you know, next week is Spring Hill Camp here at the church. Spring Hill Camps have a whatever-it-takes attitude for reaching young people with the gospel. First, they built one of the most attractive camps in the country in Everett, Michigan, and reached thousands each summer. But instead of being satisfied with that, they're always looking for a way to reach new demographics. Then they built a second camp in Indiana, but they still weren't satisfied. I remember sitting in a meeting at Spring Hill many years ago when they were telling us about their new idea to take camp to the kids, hoping to reach kids that either for financial or other reasons wouldn't come to their sleepover camp. Thus, their day camp program was born, and now they're reaching thousands in nine different states with the gospel through their day camps. We need to have a whatever-it-takes attitude to reach our friends and family that don't know Jesus. How are the crowds an obstacle to saving faith for us today? You've heard the saying, going along with the crowd, or you've heard about herd mentality. Crowds have incredibly strong influence over individuals. What else could possibly explain fidget spinners? <laughs> In Arizona's petrified forest national park, visitors would arrive to the park and learn of past thievery that had occurred from prominent signs. The sign said this. I think it's on the board there, yeah. sign said, Your heritage is being vandalized every day by theft losses of petrified wood of 14 tons a year, mostly a small piece at a time. In one experiment, they removed the sign from a specific path in the park to measure any differences it might make. Here's what happened. The path with no sign had one-third less theft than the path with the sign. 
they concluded that the visitors interpreted the sign's message as permission. Or put differently, visitors thought it was normal to take small pieces of wood because so much was stolen every year. Stolen every year. Everybody else is doing it. Why not? Something in us drives us to go along with the crowd. So how is the crowd influencing us today? Here are a few things that I hear the crowd saying today. The crowd says, people are mostly good, and to say that I have a need for, for forgiveness of sin is offensive. The crowd says that the church and the Bible are outdated, not relevant in today's culture. The crowd says the weekend is an important time to relax and have fun. And going to church every Sunday doesn't fit into that agenda. The crowd says that we should be tolerant of everyone and everything. And to point out what God identifies as sin is hateful. Faith is difficult in this crowd, which is today's culture. To fight the power of the herd mentality, we would do well to listen to the words of C.S. Lewis from his classic Mere Christianity. He said, Now faith, in the sense in which I am here using the word, is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change, whatever view your reason takes. Consequently, one must train the habit of faith. Make sure that if you have once accepted Christianity, then some of its main doctrines shall be deliberately held before your mind for some time every day. That's why daily prayers and religious readings and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will all them automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. If it's not the noise of the crowd overwhelms it. Let's go back to our text and see the next obstacle to faith that our paralytic encountered. In verses 6 and 7 it says, but some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? We ask the question, who are the scribes and why are they here? The scribes were, the edu were educated in the written law of God and its oral interpretation. In reading the New Testament, we see them painted in an almost unanimous bad light. But don't forget that we do owe them thanks for preserving the Old Testament scriptures through their 
meticulous transcription of those documents. But as I said before, the New Testament paints them almost unanimously in a bad light, and this passage is no exception. Here they appear as educated, snob know-it-alls who've shown up at this meeting with the sole intention of catching Jesus in an error. Blasphemy, they say. No one can forgive sins but God alone. The scribes here are asking the right question, but unfortunately coming up with the wrong answer. They're right when they say that only God can forgive sins. The revealed scripture didn't even indicate that the Messiah would forgive sins. Thus, this Jesus, through this action, is making a claim even more fantastic than claiming to be the Messiah. He is claiming to be God in the flesh. Now, just an aside here for those of you who are believers, could you show someone from the Scriptures a solid case for the deity of Jesus Christ? In a culture that finds that claim outlandish, can you defend it from the Scriptures? If you're not sure, then I have a homework assignment for you this week, and it's to figure out how you would do that. And I'm going to give you a couple of texts to get you started. Write these down if you you are interested. They're on the board, I think, going up. Yeah, there they are. Here's just to get you started. Put John 1.1 together with John 1.14 and see what that says. And then check out Colossians chapter 1, 13 through 20. Those texts are a great start in being able to defend the idea of Jesus being God in human flesh. But back to our scribes. They cannot accept this, and thus their accusation of blasphemy. Jesus perceives their thoughts and addresses them before they even object. Why are you reasoning this way? I could have left it at just, your sins are forgiven. But for your sake, let me put it this way, in a way that is verifiable. Get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. Now, scribes, what were you saying? Only God can do what? He proved himself. So these guys along with the Pharisees, were a constant obstacle to saving faith throughout the New Testament. So we ask, who's like the scribes today? I would suggest that the educated establishment in our culture similarly is often an obstacle for many to saving faith today. With notable exceptions, they are the guardians of truth, and the purveyors of skepticism of all things faith-based today. And we shouldn't be surprised. Because the scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God 
Let me give you an example. I believe that the earth is a little over 6,000 years old. With that statement, I'm labeled by many in the educated establishment, including maybe some in this room, as simple-minded, uninformed, and foolish. And yet in this same room are some very well-educated scientists who hold the same view. In fact, throughout history, many of the world's greatest scientists and thinkers have been people of Christian faith. Great scientists of history like Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, Descartes, Pascal, Newton, Mendel, Kelvin. Scientists still alive today like Stephen Meyer and Michael B. And don't forget about some of the greatest thinkers of the last century like C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer. My point is that the educated establishment has become an obstacle to saving faith in our community by contending that in order to believe the teachings of the Bible, you have to commit intellectual suicide. Throw the towel in on reasonable thinking and just accept with blind faith something that cannot be proven. The deity of Jesus Christ is rejected by the educational establishment and yet his teaching, his life, his death, and his resurrection all come together and make it a very reasonable conclusion to say that he was indeed God in human flesh. No blasphemy here. This man truly is God. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying education is a bad thing. In fact, I believe the opposite. But what I'm saying is that prevalent thought throughout our educational system rejects the very idea of God and therefore can become an obstacle to believing faith for many that are educated in its systems. The final obstacle to faith for the paralytic man in our story is his own personal pride. Now you might reasonably ask, what personal pride? Hasn't this man already humbled himself before God in the whole gathering of people? My answer would be, yeah, he has. First, he humbled himself by appearing in public in his paralytic state. That was particularly humbling because of the Jewish thought of the day which associated sickness with sin. No doubt just his appearance would cause many in the crowd to start mumbling about what his sin was, which resulted in this terrible condition. Then he allowed his friends to lower him down through the roof into a meeting which was already going full bore and where he couldn't be sure what would happen next. What guarantee did he have that Jesus would not just go on teaching and maybe even be irritated with him for this public interruption? Quite possibly not only heard of the healing power of this man, but also of the mercy 
and compassion with which he dealt with people, even with those to whom he had no relationship. Had he been humbled? Yes. But what, but what Jesus requires of those who would come to him by faith is total surrender. Being humbled is different than surrendering. Surrender requires sacrifice. Surrender is unconditional. Pride is often an obstacle to saving faith for many people today. Pride's kind of like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde when I think about it. It, it. it has a good side and a bad side. It's right and good to have the right amount of pride in certain things at certain times. When I, as a father, feel a sense of pride in my children for the way they live out their faith, that's right and good. But on the other hand, pride in just about any area, when taken to an extreme, becomes sinful. In fact, if you think about it, isn't atheism the ultimate form of pride? Pride taken to the extreme of saying, it's all about me. The poet has written, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Psalm 10.4 says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not see him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Since our paralytic man was humbled that day, as he was publicly lowered into the room, we see salvation was realized when he believed Jesus and got up off that stretcher in full surrender to the God-man who has the authority to forgive our sins. And there was no doubting the authority of this Jesus and the crowd that was gathered knew it. Verse 12 says that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. All right, I apologize ahead of time for this one, but it's in honor of Pastor Jeremy. Are you out there, Pastor Jeremy? He's out there. Okay, this one's in honor of you. You could say that the four friends raised the roof, R-A-Z-E-D, for Jesus, and then... The crowd of onlookers raised the roof. Woo-hoo! <laughs> he loves corny jokes, so I had to... It's for you, Pastor Jeremy. I got an email yesterday from one of our awesome missionary couples, Anthony and Sarah Seitzma. Anthony shared the story of how he and Sarah had been praying and witnessing to their night guard, Julius. He guards their home for them there in Uganda. After a few months, months, they didn't give up. After a few months of sharing with him, Julius had finally overcome his obstacles and received forgiveness of his sins. 
That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool, but it gets better. Julius went home and told his sister and his friend about Jesus. A few days later, they ended up coming with Julius to the church where Anthony was preaching. That day, they too surrendered their lives to Jesus. Guess what? It gets better still. A few days later, Julius brought five more friends to meet with Anthony and a Ugandan pastor. These guys had been Julius's old drinking buddies. But they saw his changed life, and they wanted what he had. All five of them received forgiveness of their sins just a couple of days ago. That's awesome. As we sit here today, what do you sense as your greatest need? If God is revealing to you your need for forgiveness today, let me encourage you that the, the same Jesus who forgave that paralytic man 2,000 years ago, the same Jesus who forgave those eight Ugandan souls in just a few days ago, he's still reigning. He's still in heaven. He's still the king of kings, and he still has the authority to forgive sins. He wants to forgive you. Push aside the obstacles and surrender to him today. I close with these words from Max Licato. He wrote them many years ago. Stumbled again upon this this week. Max said, If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. But since our greatest need was forgiveness, God sent us a Savior. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you have authority to forgive sins because you are the all-powerful creator God. Lord, I pray today for people in this audience who maybe are realizing their need for that forgiveness. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here today who knows their need, that they would surrender to you, even right now as we pray, that they would be willing to silently and in their hearts pray, Jesus, please forgive me. I know that you died on the cross for my sins. I thank you for dying in my place. And I pray that you would take control of my life as I surrender it to you and help me to live for you. It's in your precious name I pray. Amen.